Hello and welcome to Digital Construction Conversations, brought to you by MBS. I'm your host, Paul Swaddle, and every episode I'll be talking to interesting people connected to the digital construction industry. So I'm really pleased today to be joined by John Arnott, Director of Digital Practice at Broadway Malian. Broadway Malian are an award-winning global architecture, urbanism and design practice. Started as a design practice in the UK many years ago, but are now working at that city building district making scale globally. Offices in Lisbon, Madrid, Shanghai and Singapore and across the world. They're employee owned, giving them a culture of creativity and a shared purpose, designing places with strong identities. John is an architect, with great experience in architecture and design practice, and over the last decade has developed into information management and BIM process, change management and operational improvement. So I'm keen to talk about delivering efficiency and upskilling teams too. Disclaimer is that John is a friend. We graduated from Dundee University together, and when we talked about the new podcast series, I knew John was someone I could have an interesting chat with anytime. So here's my conversation with John Arnott. So when did digital construction become part of your path, and when did you kind of move away from, I guess, traditional architectural practice? Um, well, I guess it started fairly early, to be honest. Um, I say guess, I should know this, right? But um, yeah, it started fairly early, so... Um, I, would, I mean, first of all, I have to say, my dad never lets me forget this, and even my mum, for sure. They always talk about when I was literally a, a baby, uh, I was obsessed with technology. Like, I broke my dad's most expensive stereo you've ever seen in your life. He still has it, <laughs> but one of the buttons is broken because apparently as a child, like like a toddler or whatever, I kept pressing the button and I broke it because I just I pressed it so many times. It just, like, it gave up the ghost eventually. <laughs> so, I mean, technology, I suppose, in some way, shape or form, is always kind of something that's fascinated me, I think, is as far as back as, well, obviously as I can remember and certainly my mum and dad can as well. Um, <clears throat> but um, in terms of the actual journey to get to this point um, from sort of being a grown-up, as, as it were, is, um, you know, when, when we left university, um, the first job I landed in, which was a very small practice in Dundee, uh, Golden Rating Partners, we, you know, they had technology, they had CAD, they had computers, they had SketchUp, that kind of thing. Um, but within probably the first year of being there, so I think I started in 2006 and in that first year, it was very quick out of the box where we were approached by one of our longstanding clients, NHS Tayside, to, um, deliver one of their projects, uh, in a Revit environment. Um, and none of us really knew what we were doing at the time. Even the client didn't really know what they were asking for. They just heard about this wonderful technology um, and they'd asked if we could use it or whatever. So that was kind of the starting point. Uh, you know, the client come along and saying, can you use this technology? And we said, yes. So it was really my job to, uh, partly because I'd always shown in interest in the technology in the office, right? You know, I was kind of unofficially the IT manager, I guess. Um, so, you know, because I'd shown that interest there, they were like, well, you're kind of the natural fit to kind of pick up this software, work out how it works, and then teach the rest of us how to do it. <laughs> so that was kind of that was where it started that was kind of like baptism of fire i suppose um and then it was a bit of a start stop thing i have to say um in terms of um obviously i tried to use it and then you get to that natural point where your your experience or your knowledge just isn't there right you just don't know what you're doing because it's so new and you don't know anybody else at that time uh because uh, as far as i'm aware we were one of the first um, in Scotland to kind of use the technology. So yeah. there weren't many people around you could ask to help you out. So everything that you were working on, you kind of either had to ask like a company who maybe who trained you. And we were lucky because we had the, the training from the reseller. Um, but obviously they were based sort of, well, they weren't, the, the reseller that delivered it had a Scottish office, but they had a sort of a London contingency contingent sure. as well so obviously their london team really knew this stuff because obviously down this neck of the woods people had been using it for a while so yeah. um so they were kind of we, they, they were kind of our kind of knowledge center i suppose if you want to use that term but obviously it got to a point where it's like don't know what i'm doing um and we we've got deadlines we need to get this out so you know you dip back into cad and all the rest of it and actually for a period of time for probably it was almost a full year in truth before i picked it up again um and it was at that point obviously the both myself and the business said listen we've invested in this you know we we really could do something with this because we saw some benefit before we just got to that point where you didn't know what you were doing so what if we pick it up again and this time we when you get to a hurdle we don't just give it up we get the training in we get whatever we need the support and we just move it forward 
And that was it, really, truthfully. And at that point, we'd never looked back. For quite a period of time, were you having to balance um, architectural practice and delivering projects yes. so, with learning new technology? Yes, yeah, so that's exactly what happened. So like in the early days, I was an architect delivering projects for real people with real money on real sites. Meanwhile, kind of teaching the whole business and supporting the whole business and transforming them in their tools and processes and, and how we how we operated. The benefit, though, was that we'd done that just in that nice little window. So as I said, I joined them in 2006. I think the financial crisis was 2009, I think. Yeah. So we just snuck mm. into a nice window where we'd got those systems and processes just embedded enough that by the the the, the sort of crash, the the recession, um, where some of our competitors, whether they were the same size or bigger, obviously were laying people off left, right, and center. They just didn't have the work. Um, whereas we didn't, we we actually took people on in that time, uh, and it was all down to the fact that we'd got to that point where we had systems, processes, and technology that that we could operate in an efficient way that allowed us to do uh, the same work for less money. So we didn't need to kind of worry too much about you know, having too much work coming in. I mean, we also had to have work coming in the door, obviously, but like we, we didn't have to go searching for lots of new work. We just need to kind of do what we had as efficiently as possible to keep the profit margins high enough to keep the business running. After seven and a half years of being in that original place um, and doing all that work, um, it just came to a crunch point, to be honest. I just went, do I want to, what, what do I want to do? Because I can't keep doing architecture and the digital yeah. stuff because the two things, while they're compatible and obviously being an architect was really was really useful because I knew what I needed to deliver, and so therefore I knew knew what I needed to get out of the technology. But I I just couldn't do it anymore. Like it was just too much for one person uh, to try and do everything. So I you know I had to make a decision. What what am I going to focus on? And yeah, yeah, the decision was the digital side. Um, do you miss design practice? Do you miss architectural drawing? Um, I don't know. It's a it's a difficult one to answer. I think I probably do a little bit. Um and. I guess the the best way to describe this is um, I have just designed the, a refurb for my own house at the moment. Oh, it's um, the classic. You're designing I, like, your own house. Yeah, That's right. The, Cla- the yeah, architect's exactly. dream. Yeah, so, <laughs> and I'm I'm loving that. Yeah, I'm loving doing that work. So, uh, you know, I, I suppose I probably miss doing design work, but I don't know that I miss doing it in a commercial practice sense. It's interesting. If that yeah. makes sense. Um. Yeah, I would say that's probably a truthful answer if I said it that way. Because yeah, I do miss design, but not necessarily for other clients. So I guess related to that, you've maintained your chartered, you know, uh, architect qualification. You you're an architect by background. Do you think a non-architect, or maybe more likely a non-engineer, a non-construction person, could do the type of role you do, or do you think you need half of that construction knowledge and half of that technology knowledge? Um, I'm sure there are people out there who could prove me wrong, but I mm. genuinely think that you have much more advantage on your side or more, there's more to it. If you have a background in sort of architecture, engineering kind of thing, if you've worked on projects for real and you've delivered them for real clients or even been part of that delivery, maybe if you worked in a, a larger practice and you've not necessarily been in control of the whole process, but you've been part of that I do think that gives you uh, a much better understanding of the technology and the processes and stuff so that when you st- sit down with the people who you're about to help transform with these te- uh, technologies or processes, then you understand their mindset right on, 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 on the first day. Mm. And I think the other, the other way around is they understand that you understand them because one of the things I've often come up against is the minute they think you're not one of them, they're less likely to want to listen to what you've got to say because their immediate reaction is, you don't know what we do. You have no idea how we do what we do. So what would you know? How could you tell us to do this in a different way? That's kind of the reaction you usually get. So you can, you immediately disarm them by basically saying, I am one of you. I am an architect. I have done what you do. So I know of one um, relatively famous individual in the digital construction world who's initial interview question for all new candidates was um, to provide the millimetre dimensions of a UK brick. And I remember saying to him, like, oh, well, I would fail that instantly because that's something I always had to look up. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm not sure it does uh, indicate the amount of architectural knowledge. No, I, I think I think the only thing I would say, truthfully, is 
I don't think it really matters if you have specific design knowledge or whatever. I just think it does help. It, it just helps you kind of understand how people think and what they're going to be looking for out of the technology. But the, but it doesn't hinder you. As I've said, we've got something in the team that doesn't really know a huge amount and it yeah. doesn't it doesn't hold them back. So That's great. That's good. And uh, when you are traveling around and, you know, traveling for work and things, how different has it been having this kind of work-life balance uh, now? Um, yeah, so I, I, suppose, I think a lot of the questions today are going to be good ones, but this is one of those questions that's really interesting because um, previous, obviously, to the pandemic and stuff, um, my work-life balance, I've always tried to do the best I can in terms of balance the two things out. Um, I think if I was to look at myself, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever, 15 years ago, like I couldn't say that that was true. Um, my work-life balance was pretty shocking. So yeah. Um, yeah, in the last, I'd say in the last seven or so, seven to eight years, I've definitely worked hard or worked harder, I would say, at um, trying to, yeah, trying to have that, that work-life balance. I, I think work-life balance generally is, is much, much better these days, um, certainly because of the pandemic. But even before that, I think it was, um, yeah, something I really worked hard at, at making sort of an improvements one, let's say. And has the technology and everybody being, you know, working mostly online made it sort of easier to support teams that are working digitally? Or do you think that there is still benefit in being able to deliver stuff face-to-face? Um, yeah, I think, again, it's a great question, just for obvious reasons, you know, not everybody, again, if you think pre-pandemic, uh, were people really happy to use digital technology particularly for training uh, sessions and, and those kind of things. Um, and you would have to say hand on heart, a lot. there were a lot of people out there who sort of would dismiss a digital interaction like like this, you know, the video camera, the, the, the voice uh, and so on, because they just felt that there wasn't the ability to, um, you know, properly engage with someone on a one-on-one -on -one level in real life kind of thing. Definitely. But um, yeah, I would say that, Obviously, we've all been forced into it because there's no option than to do this, right? Um, yeah, there's been a few lulls in the sort of lockdowns and stuff, but um, generally speaking, we most for most people, whatever you are in the world, I think for the majority of people, it's been very virtual um, for at least 12 months, if not less or longer, depending on where you've been in the world. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think digital, de uh, sorry, digital technology has definitely, definitely come a long way even in the last 12 months, you know, if you've mm. seen the amount of improvements Microsoft have put into Teams, for example, yeah. and other, obviously other vendors have done the same thing, um, changed their products up a little bit just to kind of make it easier for people to connect and communicate and be in touch. So, yeah, I would say overall, I think digitally, um, we're not in a bad place. And certainly from Broadway's perspective, we do pretty much every single bit of training we can now in this, in this way. And interestingly, just as a point of note, we were actually trialing this sort of um, on small scale, but um, looking at how we could use the more digital environment for the business before the pandemic even came up. Because, you know, one of the things that is fairly evident, and I'm sure we'll get into in more detail shortly, but um, my team predominantly, although we've got people spread around the studios, um, are predominantly based in the UK. So, uh, you know, okay. uh, being able to be available to people in other places is not always that easy. So this kind of gives us that flexibility. So when I was thinking about the podcast and thinking about putting ideas for questions together, I thought about a question that I could ask everybody. And one thing I'm always interested in is how people describe what they do for a living. Okay. And so I think the, the question is sort of, say you met somebody who's not from the industry, who's not perhaps from digital technologies or not from the construction industry, or say you had to go and do a talk at a high school. How do you describe what you do? God, I love this question. It's one I've been working on for literally years. Um, and I love this question, I think, for a number of reasons. So uh, before I answer your actual question, I love it because um, trying to explain what I do daily has always been a bit of a challenge, especially in the early days. Um, you know, because, you know, even when we talked about BIM, you know, 15 years ago or whatever it was, um, you know, even just talking about that as a, as a thing, people would go, so what is that? So yeah, it's taken me a long time, I think, to sort of 
I guess come to a point where I'm comfortable about what it is that I do, like what's the value that I'm bringing to these businesses and trying to explain that in a way that it doesn't matter whether you're in the industry or out with it, that you can kind of get to grips with kind of what it is that you do. Um, so how do you answer? Yeah, yeah. So now, <laughs> now I guess, you know, to answer your question, um, I would say simply in a simplistic way, simply put, um, basically I help people do more better with less. Um, it's a good phrase. It's a great phrase. It's a little bit stolen to be honest from <laughs> other people, but, um, you know, I wouldn't claim it to be original or whatever, but it kind of sums up in the shortest possible way what I do. So a little bit more elongated, uh, to put a bit more meat on the bones as it were. Basically, um, my job essentially is to, uh, lay, well, basically work with the, the management of a business um, and look at how we can make said business much more efficient and effective in how they deliver their services or products to their clients. Um, so it's a bit of uh, change management. It involves a bit of management consultancy and it involves a few other bits that go around that that most people would be quite, I think, familiar with from other industries. And do you deliberately... I guess, steer away from terms like BIM and even digital construction when you're describing that to people who aren't from the industry? Or do you try to explain those terms in simple ways? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily shy away from explaining those. Um, you know, and I certainly would start talking about them, I think, at the relevant level. So that is kind of almost like the finding your way into any any um, anything really, right? So if you know nothing about something, you want to start at a very high level, and then start building detail or layers within that as you you progress down into the the various topics or the or the acronyms or whatever it is. So yeah, I, I would I definitely don't shy away from talking about the BIM stuff. Um, and I, you know, especially if it's somebody who's you know maybe a layperson, somebody out with the industry, um, you know, I'll definitely explain what that is to them. But I don't necessarily start with that because it's just as soon as you say it people, people look at you like you've got three eyes or something you know <laughs> and do you like the term digital construction or do you prefer BIM or other terms like VDC or whatever other acronyms get used yeah I think for me I think I'd prefer to stick to something like digital construction um or one one that I created a while ago which um I think others have nicked subsequently but um I'm not again I'm not proclaiming so it was original. originally <laughs> I don't think it was original but what I, what I definitely have I didn't hear many people talk about it, but every you talk about BIM obviously building information management whatever but I always called it business information management because for me it was about bear in mind I was thinking about in my own mindset I was focused on making the business that I was within the best it can be. And yeah. whatever information that we create, whether that's a piece of, you know, whether it's a, a drawing, a sketch, a report, whatever it is, the, the piece, that information has to get to someone, whether it's a contractor, a client, whoever, um, and tell them something about the building or the or the object that they're trying to construct. So, um, yeah, so I used to try and describe it in that sense. But yeah, I suppose more recently for me, digital construction, I think is probably the best kind of, catch-all phrase or or term. So I guess one of the things that I'm aware of is the power of that term maybe kind of losing its way because there are so many competing similar type uh, terms, digital twins, you know, uh, digital construction, and maybe the term BIM appears to mean a very specific kind of set of processes. So I don't know how you feel about that in terms of certainly when I talk to people who have the term BIM manager or the job title, you know, information manager, when you talk about that kind of term BIM, people can be quite protective of it maybe. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that's probably part of the reason why I tried to shy away from it a little bit. You know, it's not my job title and it's Mm. not something I'd start with on the very first five seconds is talking to someone um, because BIM, BIM, VDC, digital construction, whatever it is, all the terms that are out there, as you've said, I think they're all well used um, to the, but to the point where I think they're almost overused and yeah. to the point where people are just going, do you know what? I'm not really sure what you're talking about. Yeah. Are you talking about a process? Are you talking about a piece of technology? Are you talking about an outcome? You know, what is it that you're actually discussing here? How does your team fit into the wider network of offices at Broadway, Malian and the work that they do? 
So we're a group service, for, first of all. Um, so I head up a, a group called Digital Practice. That's what we've called ourselves. To be honest with you, I couldn't think of a better term at the time. Um, and I didn't want to use the term BIM because for me, um, that just <laughs> um, instantly made people think, especially within the business, that were not so well versed in this stuff, that all we were there to do was talk about Revit all day long. And for me, that just it sent the wrong signals and wrong messages about what our mm. uh, purpose and goal was. Um, and yes, obviously, you know, not, again, not to be uh, shying away from it, obviously one of our major things to, to be in the business to achieve and to improve is the Revit usage because we understand that as one of one part of our many tools that we have at our disposal, it is one of those that's going to help us deliver designs in a more efficient way, right? Um, ma the majority of the team are based in London, but that's just mainly because... You know, I'm, I'm based there myself. Um, and then I've employed a few people in the team in that location. But we do have um, a colleague in sh uh, Shanghai as well. Um, and then beyond that core group, so there's four of us in total in the core group. Beyond that, though, there's a, a cohort of around 25 people who deal with different things. And they're all kind of ambassadors of something or champions of something or whatever it is. So they kind of either look after their studio or maybe a, a specific product. Um, so we've got a lot of um, Adobe ambassadors as one of them. For example, we've got a couple of people okay. uh, sort of around the business that look after that stuff and train yeah. and support that 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 piece. So, um, and then I would say the other part is obviously that it's not all about software, right? So there's very much a sort of two tracks I think in our group service. There's a sort of a software tract, which is one aspect of it, obviously, and then there's like a process thing, which is all about the as I call it, the spoken hub effect, right? So I see digital practice very much as a spoke, sorry, at the hub of the the yeah. digital world within probably mine, um, where we're connecting not just um, to the teams, obviously, that are delivering projects, yeah. but um, we're connecting with IT, uh, marketing, the bid team, uh, legal, um, finance, everybody uh, in some way, shape or form. Um, because whether or not we're, we're maybe bidding for a new project, obviously we're getting involved in that in terms of looking at questions that are asked of us. Can we do this or that or the next thing? We get involved with contract discussions with directors because they're looking at the legal side of things. Um, you know, we're being asked to deliver X, Y, and Z. Can we do that or not? And if we can, should we be doing that? You know, those kind of things. Is it appropriate for these projects? So there's a lot of aspects here out with the technology that we get yeah. involved in that that's kind of again you know thinking back to the title not just of the of the the group service but then the um the each independent each individual role that Absolutely. everybody plays is um i think really important and that's again you know we talked about it earlier but just to get away from this bim thing because i think bim is only one part one part of the jigsaw really that makes up what we do you've mm. mentioned that there's sort of a training function to what you do as well and that a lot of it is about upskilling so what kind of proportion of your time is is spent doing that kind of work? Um, training is obviously it's a vital part of, of any business, I think, and um, certainly it is in BM. But uh, in terms of the, the amount of time we spend doing training in, in a year, um, I, I think we dedicate something like um, it's about 150 hours, something like that, every year across the business. And that's not that's just sort of dedicated in terms of days or weeks or hours or whatever it is that we set aside like every so for example we have what we call digital days for each studio um so That's every correct. studio has one day per month dedicated to them where they have literally a digital practice person who sits with that team and they'll do nothing else they don't do anything for anyone else they'll either train them support them take questions live whatever it is but just yeah. help resolve issues on that day be there as a bit of a floating resource kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's only one aspect of it. So those are like the dedicated days. So like if you look at one studio has 12 of those in, in the year, and we've obviously got 16 studios, so you can kind of do the math on that one. Yeah. But, um, there, and that's just, like I said, that's just things that we've said, these are fixed in time. That's what we do without any questions. And then beyond that, on top of that aspect is, is the ad hoc training, right? So we typically... Uh, operate on a sort of a, a just-in-time model so mm. um, we don't 
I mean, we do do sessions, obviously, sort of ahead of time. So, like, um, we'll just do kind of, um, I don't know, a lunchtime seminar or whatever on uh, how to create a family object or whatever it is. But um, generally speaking, we work on just-in-time methods. So we basically have the directors of each of the studios saying, we've got a new project starting on such and such a day. Can you train this team of five or whatever it is, team of three, um, on this project? And so we we basically sit down and, and we take a day to two days, depending on the project size and complexity. Um, and we'll spend the time going through the relevant uh, topics and, and stuff with that. I team. see. So, yeah. So yeah, rather than it obviously... being, rather than it being when those say software updates, you know, are applied or there's a new version out or whatever and trying to train everybody at the same time, it's much more related to the projects that they're working on. Yeah. Um, mainly because we find, and I've certainly found it in my experience over the last 14, 15 years of doing this stuff that um, you have to be very careful. There's a, a very fine balance between training someone about sort of new new features in a product and then training them how to use a product or a software mm. on a project, especially if they've never done it before, which, you know, broadly mine, certainly four or five years ago when I joined, um, you know, there was very little usage of that kind of product around. So, um, you know, when you teach someone something new, I think we've all heard it before, but... Um, you forget about 90% of what you've learned within 24 hours if you don't use it straight away. Mm. So, and there's plenty um, uh, evidence out there through various university studies and stuff that, that show that, that kind of confirm that that's true. Yeah. And that obviously just gets worse over time. So if we train yeah. six months in advance of any need, it's just kind of pointless, to be honest. Um, yeah. We just find it's, we've wasted our time and everybody else's time. So, so it's quite project specific. So yeah. do you tend to think about... Um, the type of tools that are going to be most suitable for a project, do you influence those kind of decisions or do they tend to be quite design led um, and you're kind of requested for, for providing those tools? Um, it will obviously depend on the project and the client and all their requirements and so on. But again, we're usually uh, for the most part brought in early enough to make those decisions or have those discussions at least with the relevant people. So whether that's the directors within the business that are sort of doing the face-to-face -face client stuff or indeed the clients themselves, which we've done uh, on a number of occasions um, that I can think of where we've brought the client into the studios. Uh, this is obviously pre-pandemic. And um, yeah. I sat them down in a room and said, you know, talk to us, tell us what you want to achieve. Uh, and we'll talk to you about what we think is the right thing for us to do for you. Because actually um, what we found, and again, I'm sure we're not unique in this at all, but um, we've definitely found where we've had clients who have sort of demanded the the world essentially, um, but they've not really understood what they're actually asking for. They've just heard Absolutely. this amazing stuff that can be done, but not understood really what their requirements or needs are. So yeah, we've we've we usually step in at that point and sort of help shape a lot of that, which then obviously goes into shaping what technologies we use or processes or, or that kind of thing. So, and when you think about the kind of drivers for digital practice, you mentioned that perhaps within the company, there's been quite an acceleration of some of those digital tools and processes. Um, can you describe, I guess, some of the drivers that have led to that? So clearly there's things you've talked about, design efficiency, you know, standardizing process, those kind of things. But what are the, the core justifications for digital transformation? I think it's fairly obvious to most people, especially in the, the AEC sector, that it's a very competitive marketplace, right? There's a lot of mm. architects in the, in the in the industry. Generally speaking, there's a lot of competition out there. And so one of the things I always say that this is, you know, these digital transformation programs is about is allowing us to get ahead of the competition and be able to either offer a service or indeed mm. just, whether it's a new service or whether it's offering a service in a different way than somebody else, um, you know, that's obviously a, a a thing you might make a judgment on but fundamentally it's about whatever service that we are offering whether it's something that's current that we've always done or whether it's something that's new that we're just working on um it just kind of allows us to be a bit better than the competition hopefully that we can do things more efficiently and effectively we reduce our risk we can increase our quality all the stuff that you would expect me to say but that is <laughs> honestly what it's about because if we're not doing that then we're either behind the curve with our competitors which obviously isn't great because the clients are going to say well you're not doing what this guy over here is doing mm -hmm. so why would we come to you and two if we can't be efficient and effective and reduce risk and increase quality and all those wonderful things 
then um, our fees are going to be too high fundamentally, right? We're just going to not be able to compete in a competitive marketplace at yeah. the right fee level. And we all know that, you know, for years in architecture, there's always been a, a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of fees. So um, if we can use technology and, and better processes to, to, to make us more effective uh, in what we do and how we deliver, then that has to be a, a benefit for the business long-term. I mean, where we mine, as you said, at the right, right at the very start, we've been around a long time. So um, we intend to continue being around for a long time. And I think the only way to do that is to be competitive. Um, and it's something obviously that we all know about. We've all heard the stories of Nokia's and, uh, mm. you know, Sears and whoever it is in, in the world that have not necessarily evolved and changed what they offer and how they deliver stuff to people. And, you know, they've gone out of business. Um, so we don't want to be that, that, that. That's not where we want to be really. Are you seeing that um, demand for that information, say VR being a good example, where obviously there's a design requirement for some of these technologies and you're trying to arrive at a construction output, but obviously there's huge amounts of benefits longer term. So are you beginning to explain that to clients in terms of if you you know, are prepared for us to develop this amount of information, you can actually use it for 10, 20 years uh, in that building's life cycle. Yeah. And to be honest, we've done that with other, uh, one or two of our clients for a number of years, actually. But yes, we, we definitely try and explain that to them, you know, if it, whether it's a, um, something that we do sort of, I don't know, day 10 on a project that's only really relevant to the design or whether it's something that we do on day 110 that then lasts for 25 years after that, that allows them to make decisions uh, at any point they, they wish to be making decisions. So, um, one of our clients, um, Costco, who we've worked for, I think oh, yeah. the last 20 ish years. I'm not exactly sure when our first, first project was, but it's like 20, 25 years we've been working with them. Um, and you know, we've got, uh, basically an online, I suppose, filing cabinet for one of a better word, um, <laughs> where we've always kept all the drones, like all the record drones as designed, not necessarily as constructed, but certainly as designed, yeah. uh, has been kept for them, uh, for that period of time. So at any point they can delve into that, um, and look at, you know, what was designed and hopefully if we've got the, the information from the contractor or we've done it maybe back in the day when it was more acceptable to do. Um, you know, um, we've got as constructed or something, um, then they've got that reference point to look at. So if they're looking to extend or change something within the stores, yeah. they've cool. got something to kind of refer to. And so, you know, one of the examples, well, there's a couple of examples, but you know, where does the fill drain come in and out of the building where, you know, what door handles are on that door or what's the fire ratings or you know, whatever it is, that information's there for them. Um, yeah. so, and you know, it's good for them because it's held digitally on an online system that they can access whenever. So even at their end or, and at our end, obviously if our designers have left, they've designed that building, not a problem because the information's there. And likewise, if they're, I don't know, their asset managers or their, uh, their director of construction or whoever it is might not be around. Yeah, you speak to you speak to people in the industry now. I think some you know who are coming through relatively young, and the there's kind of an amazement that anybody managed to find that information when it was all paper based and it was all just on yeah. rolls of drawings in offices somewhere. Because having access to that kind of data, being able to filter it, being able to search across it and find you know what door handle is on a particular door set, <laughs> you know. Must have taken a huge amount of effort previously. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say just on that point, I, I, I recall uh, uh, many years ago when I was still an architect in the very first place I worked, and I remember a client phoning one day and asking for some drawings. I can't remember what they were doing. I don't know if they were going to do an extension to the house or whatever, because I think we designed the original house and they were looking to do an extension. So they'd phoned and asked for the drawings, and that was back in the day when we didn't have it digitized. Um and the place I worked in was basically in a converted uh, manse, an old manse house. Oh, yeah. So in the attic, they'd converted the whole attic to basically their archive storage. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't properly spiders and stuff, but like it was still pretty <laughs> grotty. And I had to go up there because I was the part two or whatever. So they were like, you can go and do it, right? Young guy, you can go up and do it. <laughs> um, so I had to go through all these cupboards and drawers and boxes and whatever to find this information because nothing, it was just, impo it wasn't impossible because I found it in the end, but it was very difficult. difficult. Yeah. yeah. It took me hours to find the stuff I was looking for. 
And then, of course, back then there was this whole, um, well, if we've spent like, uh, like I don't know, an hour, five hours, whatever it's been to find that information, we're going to charge the client however much money it is to, that, you know, your time is worth to do that, which yeah. kind of makes sense. But in truth, nobody should have had to spend five hours looking for that information. Absolutely. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, I wonder how much of the digital transformation journey has been generated off people who just found the old way so frustrating that they were prepared to put the effort into developing brand new ways of doing things. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I never want to have to do a hand-drawn perspective again for the rest of my life, basically. Yeah. The, the, um, the project example you used there in terms of um, Costco was one that I was wondering whether we could chat about. And um, in particular, I guess, having a client that you are working with on a fairly regular basis where hopefully they can see a development in the types of outputs that they're getting and the quality of the projects that they're getting because of these new implemented digital technologies. So do you think that's a, a an obvious way of looking at the development of the digital practice that you've got in that, is it a quality thing? Like what are the the advantages to a client in terms of, you know, repeat working with the same organizations? Um, well, again, I think there's probably many, many advantages to, to, to sort of repeat work and, and that kind of thing. But I think the probably the obvious ones, uh, you know, makes it make more sense. So things like, you know, if we've already designed, let's say we've designed um, a Costco unit previously, um, and it was only, I don't know, maybe six months ago, but it could equally be 10 years ago. Um, there's probably things that we've learned through the process of delivering that project that we either want to repeat or obviously don't want to repeat on the next one. Mm. So just that experience and that knowledge of making sure that the next project, um, whatever that looks like, is, um, you know, it's, it's a learning experience and, and we, we learn from it and make sure that the, the client gets a better end product. And that's not to say that the previous one was a rubbish end product. It's just Absolutely that yeah. there's always going to be learnings that come from it and yeah. then we apply those to the next one and the next one. So... Yeah, and those so, improvements can be quite incremental. They can be quite yeah. small in a way, but building up over time, that's going to show massive benefits. Yeah, exactly that. And yeah, so whether it's um, you know just improvements in terms of uh, maybe it's the design aspect. So maybe um, where, I don't know, 10 years ago, we might have, uh, I don't know, we've put the till points in a certain location in the shop and we've decided actually, do you know what, it doesn't make sense because the flow doesn't work in the shop or whatever it is. And obviously the client's seen that through the usage of the building as well. So it's kind of a mix between us and them kind of coming together and onto the next project and saying, look, what happened last time? We thought worked, but it doesn't really work. Can we change that up and stuff? And we can really look at a lot of that stuff. And I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the major benefits, to be honest. Obviously, the other things are, you know, we've got the draw, we've got the drawings. So if they want to change that store, which we've got again many examples of, yeah, with that particular client where, um, we've got you know what we call we class them as sites, and then within the sites we've got a series of projects that have happened over the years. Sure. Um, and it's because we're you know we've already done the work previously, so we're just kind of starting from where we left off last time. But obviously with the listed building, that um, was very different in terms of um, obviously nobody had done that before. Like, so uh, one one of the things that came up quite quickly was um, within the listed building, we couldn't change in the structure, obviously, because the whole sure. thing was listed. It wasn't just the, like the facade or whatever. The whole thing was listed. So, you know, coming into a store in the, in the main front door, there's typically a, a series of things that you're meant to see as a client or a customer. Um, but in this store, we couldn't necessarily deliver that because there was structure in the way. So yeah. using the VR platforms that we had um, allowed us to kind of take that to the client early in the design stages and say, look, this is the building as it is today. And this is the design that we've laid out based on the knowledge and experience that we've got, but we've tweaked it based on the fact that we know these things can't happen or these things can't happen. Um, and able to show you, that from yeah, walkthroughs and yeah, yeah, what do you think? So there was a digital sort of one one to one scale where they could walk through a digital model where they could literally just say, well, actually, do you know what? That you've done really well here. This is perfect. The design decisions you've made, or indeed the reverse of that, which was you know that's actually, incredibly valuable, like that. though, right? Yeah, yeah, that's massively valuable. Yeah, and and having that uh, visualization, having that ability to do that. Yeah. So, I guess the the other question that I kind of I'm keen to ask all the guests that we'll have on the podcast is 
what do you think are the barriers to digital construction implementation? Because we talk about all these benefits. We talk about how things have transformed over the last few years. Um, but yet you still go on site and there's paper everywhere. You still, you know, find that there's a lot of reluctance, I think, in terms of receiving digital outputs. So what do you find are those barriers and, and what are the ways that we could solve them? Hmm. It's a good, uh, another it's a massive question. question. <laughs> another, another fantastic question. I just, oh God, um, I think I could probably write an essay on this, but um, to be honest with you. That's our book. I've, there you go. That's our <laughs> there book. we go. We could do a book. That's, <laughs> we'll that's what we could do. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I think, Obviously, one of the things, yeah, and I, I, this is no disrespect to anybody who's in the industry. I think one of the things is just a natural kind of progression thing. So you've obviously got, um, you know, a number of people who have been in the industry for decades who are used to bits of paper and used to doing things a certain way. So you've obviously yeah. got that 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 aspect to it, which is, um, you know, people just like what they like. They know what they know, and they hate change. Um, People are, are are different, right? So, like, if you talk to an architect, you talk to a QS, you talk to a, a contractor, whatever, you'll find different levels of of willingness to change. Um, but I think overall, there's still a, a kind of a, quite a heavy, um, deep set kind of mindset that says, "Yeah, oh, this has always been the way. We've always done this. So why why are we changing it now?" And I think obviously we start to see a lot of that change. You know, there's no denying that, that the industry is changing. And we've we've definitely seen a lot of that, but I I do think there's a long way to go yet. So for me, I think um one of the things I think if you're if you're a graduate and you were standing in front of me today and I'd say I would just say have a bit of patience because you know it's not all <laughs> gonna be roses and, and digital stuff that you think it's gonna be. Because I think that's one of the things I've noticed with some of the, the graduates that have joined Broadway Mine uh over the last couple of years. You know, they kind of come in and they've they've got all this idea in their head that's gonna be Revit this and Rhino that and you know, Dynamo the next thing. And like, yeah, I mean, it exists. Don't get me wrong. We do it, but we, it's not like a ingrained everyday sort of thing. Yeah, it's not um, your everyday. No, it's not. It's not your everyday. It's because it's not yet. Right. So because some of that technology is still very new to, to a lot of people. And bear in mind, like if you talk about generative design, one of the things I think is kind of something that holds people back is it doesn't operate with a designer's mindset. It operates much more with a mathematician's mindset. You know what I mean? Interesting. Um, yeah. If you think about a designer is used to getting a pen and paper and, and sketching out the, the very thing that's in their head. So they graphically represent what yeah. they want on a piece of paper. And whether that's physically or digitally, right? They're, they're, they're physically drawing the thing that they want to see. But with a generative thing, if you're using Grasshopper Rhino or you're using Dynamo or something like that, you're thinking about what form you want to generate, but you've got to think about it from a sort of numbers and letters yeah. point of view, if that makes sense. Absolutely, so yeah. It's a very different way of thinking. And I think that in that in that sense, because of that, you know, you're not going to see that be mainstream every day for quite some time yet, because for the majority of the industry, they're just not there. That's not what they're used to. Are you finding more clients or contractors or the supply chain are becoming more digitized just as a natural part of their business? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think um especially some of the more mainstream contractors, without a doubt, because they're all in the same game as, as I discussed earlier on around architecture, which is we're big, big companies. We need to make uh, as much profit as possible. And obviously everybody's been squeezed in terms of that, right? Yeah. Costs have gone up and profits are coming down because, you know, you need to kind of win the job or whatever. So anything that gives you some sort of advantage to, to claw back cost um, is obviously going to be a benefit. And I think, you know, I, I've certainly seen it a lot. I mean, the major players are all in that that sphere. They're all kind of working that way anyways. Um some of the young, the smaller firms, same thing. You know, you've seen them do the same thing because they're saying, well, now we can compete with the bigger guys. There's less, um, I suppose there's less disparity between them. Yeah. And I would, I could give you an example of that. You know, if I, again, talking back a few years ago when I was, you know, first left university or whatever, um, when I joined the, the first company I worked for, um, it was... I wouldn't say it was archaic because it wasn't. I mean, we we had we all had computers, we all had CAD, whatever, right? So there was it wasn't archaic. We weren't on drawing boards, but um, what we quickly realised was that we could start to compete with some of the bigger firms mm. because we were smaller and we were more 
agile and more efficient agile. anyway, just Absolutely. because we were smaller, smaller cost base, yeah. et cetera. But what we realized was that if we had the same technology, which had become more affordable at that point, that some of these bigger guys traditionally would have bought because it was usually typically more expensive in the olden yeah. days, then um, it just meant that we, there was more of a competitive thing there, which is good and bad. You can look at this in different ways, right? You can see this as very brilliant for the industry as a whole because it's lots of competition, so therefore it drives prices down and therefore and it also makes things more efficient and people want to be better and better and better, quality is better and so on. But equally, you have to balance that out with, I think, is what I said earlier, is this race to the bottom, which is it's all well and good having all this great technology, great processes, better quality and stuff. But if that overall drives down prices to the point where people just can't operate, you know, they just can't deliver the work, right? Or they can't um, have the people on the project that's, that's needed to be on that project. And I've seen it in a number of projects where I've worked over the last few years um, where we've got, where we maybe should have a team of, I don't know, three or four, but actually we can only afford one or two. And that's because you've just got to keep your, your cost base so low. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, what I would say is it's a very difficult one um, to, to kind of find an answer, but you, I think there's definitely got to be a, a, a fine balance there. With your experience of your international offices and the rate of adoption, what, are, what is the kind of understanding of BIM globally that it's not just 3D CAD, that it's not just Revit and ArchiCAD and Vectorworks and so on? Are you seeing that same growth of the information technologies underpinning it all globally? Yes. Yeah, so this is a great, I, I love this. This is a fantastic question. This is probably one of the things that I, um, it's fascinated me for the last few years, to be honest. And mm. I'm glad you've asked about it, to be fair. Um, the reason why I think this is fascinating is because if I think back in the UK, so like uh, back to, I don't know, 2006, seven, something like that. Um, when I first started picking up the Revit stuff, right? Um, and this was obviously in my original company, trans, you know, looking at how we could work with one of our long-standing clients who was NHS uh, Trust at the time. Um, and they had come to us, as the client, they'd come to us and said, look, we want you to deliver this nuclear medicine department. There's two of them. There's one for uh, Dundee and one for Perth. Um, and we need you to de develop those both up. And we, we, we've heard about this fantastic thing called Revit. So we want you to use that. Can you, do you know what, what it is? Can you use it? Now, luckily for us, the directors had heard about it, but um, none of us had used it. We didn't even have it in the office. Yeah. Um, so we obviously were like, yeah, sure, we can do that. Because we were thinking, like, this is a big, long-standing client. It's a lot of money, obviously, big nuclear medicine stuff. This is really important that we win this. So we just said, yeah, no problem. Not, 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 a not, don't worry about it. Leave it with us. Obviously, we went and we got the stuff trained, obviously, the team up, whatever, and started using it. But what was interesting was seeing sort of the, uh, the sort of solo BIM work, let's say, right? So you're, you're working on your own, doing it for your own benefit, for your client's benefit, whatever. But you didn't have structural engineers and you didn't have ME and so on involved. And as that developed, obviously, you had people who, you know, would think, oh, it's BIM is Revit, Revit's BIM, or, and even things like trying to, because it was this 3D modeling tool in their head, they were thinking, oh, we'll put every nut, screw and bolt in here because BIM is meant to tell us everything. It could schedule everything and so on. And the reason I'm telling you all that is because I think I've seen the exact same stuff, right? So from that 2006 point all the way through to now and yeah. the development that I went through and the experience I went through and even the development and experience that you've seen and the maturity that's come into the UK marketplace hasn't necessarily reached other places yet. You know, if I look at some of the other markets that we work within, there's still a number of places around the world that have the myth, the mentality that we had back in 2005, six, seven today, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So they still see it like a, you know, Oh, BIM is Revit, Revit's BIM. You need to put every nut, screw and bolt in there, etc., cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. They're still thinking back at that point, which is fine because they're not as mature as we are in in that world but and so you would expect that but it's really interesting to see the exact same stuff sort of almost repeating itself yeah i was going to say so does that make it easier in a way because you can say we were at this stage exactly the same this is the way we solved it this is the amount of detail that we put into this type of a model and you're able to bring those exact examples or do you think it's more difficult because um it's happening now if you see what i mean and and some of the technologies are sort of capable of one of the reasons of stripping stuff out was that, you know, the, the 
the computers, the underlying hardware, you know, wasn't able to cope with some of the scale of models that we were working on, those kind of things. Mm. Because those technology limitations have maybe disappeared, are you still having to teach the same information good practice? Yes. So, yeah, basically, we're still having to teach the same information good practice. Um, so, yeah, the technology has developed, and yes, arguably, you can definitely put more detail into some of this stuff. I mean, we still say don't put it in, not just from an information management perspective, but truly, actually, the models can get really overburdened, especially at the yeah. scale that we work at, right? It's slightly different if you were working on like a small extension or something like that. But if you're working on the kind of multi multi-million or multi-billion pound stuff that we do, um, then, yeah, even putting a lot of detail into that can get very sort of weighty very quickly. Um, but I always, and it's, I, I, hopefully it'll make you laugh and hopefully the listeners will laugh at this, especially those that are a little bit older. I always try to take this back to what you would do on a drawing board. So I appreciate yeah. some of the younger listeners may not what's a, have... What's a drawing what's board? What's a drawing board? Never use one. <laughs> what are you talking about? But... Um, I always say, think about the drawing board, right? Honestly, if you're drawing a, a let's say it was a, a plan and this thing's going to be at one to hundred, then you're never going to put the screws, nuts and bolts and connection details in there. That's just not going to be a thing. And you should never do the same in Revit, even, and I always say this and everybody laughs at me, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Absolutely right. right. Because that is the honest truth of the whole thing is that you wouldn't have done it on a drawing board. So you wouldn't, you shouldn't be doing it in yeah. in a Revit environment because ultimately even if the the draw and the view that you produce from that model is going to be in a 2D environment even if it is digital you're still viewing that at the 1 to 100 scale or whatever it is exactly right that. so yeah. the information has to be relative to what it is that you're trying to kind of get across to that to whoever's reviewing that or reading that um so I think that's really important and yeah so th th those things are the things that we teach a lot yeah, and it's all about context, isn't it? You know, yeah. we're not necessarily using those models for fab for fabrication. You're not using them to um, then be manufactured from. Yeah. And we've worked with manufacturers, obviously, at MBS in terms of helping them to understand what information's required uh, within their object. Yeah, um, well, I just on that point, sorry, just before you, you go on, so just the same, same sort of thing. So I, I actually had, this would be a couple of years ago now, like I can't remember exactly yeah. how long ago, but a few years ago I'd been asked to do a talk for one of the Autodesk resellers who were hosting a manufacturing event. And it was very specific to that audience. It was their manufacturers who, you know, they, they bought software from them or whatever to do their technical details or whatever. But um, they'd asked me to present from an architectural standpoint because they were saying the manufacturers didn't necessarily understand um, what information was relevant to the architect and what was maybe more relevant to say somebody who would build the object and, and so on. And in the presentation, I, I basically tried to distill it into one slide where I had a table and it was like three columns basically. And it actually refers specifically back to like the MBS spec writing of old, right? But I think it's still very relevant today, which is sort of outline spec. Uh, I can't remember what the middle one is. What's like performance level? Performance, yeah. And then like mm. a sort of full spec, right? Um, but I, but what I took was an object. I think I took a toilet or something like that. I can't remember. It was a door or a toilet or something. And I put that on the table and I just basically said at the outline stage, it needs to be this thing. And all it really said was, you know, it's the right size and the right shape or something like that. Yeah, and really simple. Yeah, really simple. Properties. And then the next stage mm. and the next stage. And it was just the properties exactly that. And a little image. And it's it sounds crazy because... Everybody knows that, like especially if you're looking at LED stuff. Everybody goes, "Well, that's what the LED talks about." Yeah, but that's exactly it. Is it's understanding what's a, appropriate for that level of definition at that stage of the design. Absolutely, um, and it feels to me as if we've it's taken a decade almost of all of these various BIM processes and standards to get us there in terms of a kind of general understanding of information yeah. management. But so when you do, sorry, go so, on, John. So what's really crazy about that, if you think about it logically, is none of that's new, right? No. We've always done that. As that's architects it. or designers of anything, whether you're an architect, engineer, whatever, as yeah. a designer within the built environment, you have always worked on this methodology of at this point in the project, I need to give this information to such and such person. Um, when the BIM stuff came along and it started talking about levels of definition and so on, People thought it was this fancy new thing because it was obviously under the BIM banner and they're like, oh my God, this is too complicated. I don't understand. But actually all it was really doing was explaining what you've always done. 
Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And so in terms of the international offices, clearly a lot of those standards have now become part of the ISO 19650. There's a kind of move towards internationalization and standardization in digital construction generally. Are you seeing that being adopted across BM globally or how does that work for you? Um, I, I mean, if I was being completely honest, I would say it's not been adopted by anybody, but, um, <laughs> that's not true. Obviously. I mean, yeah, we've, we've got projects, uh, with clients that, you know, they're saying you have to deliver in this way and, you know, they're saying BIM level two or whatever. Um, so that just kind of immediately forces your hand into using the ISO standard, um, which is fine. Cause to be honest, I personally think we should all be working to that standard. Um, whether you like it or you hate it, the fact is that it's a standard. And if mm. everybody worked to it, then we would all be better off. Because I always, I've always had an analogy. I love an analogy. I don't know if I've done many in this discussion, but I do love <laughs> an analogy. But years ago, I started up with the analogy of airlines, right? So there's two manufacturers, and well, there's more than two manufacturers, but two major manufacturers of commercial airlines in the world. Yeah. And there are however many hundreds of thousands of airports around the bloody globe, right? But when those airline, when those um, planes turn up to the gate, at no point do they go, oh, we can't connect to that. You know, the plane turns up and there's a little arm that comes out and you can open the door and people can come in and out and they don't fall to the ground and they're safe and all the rest of it, right? It's the kind of the analogy of it, which is you've got all these potential airports who could potentially do things so different from each other. Um but they don't. They, they, they kind of operate to a similar standard, which means that exactly, any plane can right. turn up to any airport at any time and, and connect. So, um, you know, and mobile phones is another good example of that. You've got however many yeah. mobile phone manufacturers in the world and however many um, cell uh, carriers or whatever, right? But they all work on a similar standard, which means that if I send a text message to you, no matter what handset or which network you're on, you're going to be able to decode the net, the message I've sent you and read that. Absolutely right. Yeah. So for me, that they're analogous to what we're talking about here, which is having that standard, whether it's the perfect standard, fair enough, it might not be, yeah. but it can be improved. But if we start on the same footing, then we've got half a chance of getting the thing built as efficiently and effectively as possible. And, and, and we oh, can talk the same language, right? So Exactly that, yeah. And I think just on the standardization part, one of the other things that I think um bim particularly like if you talk to some of our designers within the studios that we've got um they are there's quite a number of them that will still say you know oh you know no two buildings are the same uh we never designed the same thing twice everything's unique uh, and i always say like you know i'm not i'm not suggesting for a minute that there isn't a unique aspect to the design because the site's slightly different every time or whatever right or maybe the client requirement changes from site to site or whatever so there are, there will obviously be things that are different between the projects however we all build with the same building materials so when you break mm. this down into its component parts a brick is a brick a window is a window a door is a door right yeah the size might be slightly different or whatever but the fundamentals of the built element the built environment are the same components every time so if the built environment works that way why wouldn't the design environment work the same way that we have some standardized parts that we work with and your design can still be as wonderful and as fantastic as it, as it wants to be. But there's some components there that we worked with that are kind of off the shelf as it were, because there's no way you, even with the best design in the world, like, you know, if you got a Frank Gehry or something like that, they, you know, the fantastical designs they come up with, but what sits behind that design in terms of delivering that on site is the same screw sizes that everybody else uses on all their sites. Right. Or Absolutely. whatever. Yeah. So, the idea that we're using the same components and that they can be standardized, but that actually it doesn't prevent you from creating a completely unique building or a completely no. unique place. I mean, I mean, everybody hate, probably hates this one, but I mean, Lego is a perfect example of that, right? Yeah. They're all the same bits for everybody in the world, right? There's nothing unique about them, but the amazing designs that you've seen people come up with, you know, can blow your mind sometimes. Yeah. And it's just thinking through how you use the medium of Lego to create the design that's in your head. And I think that's, that's kind of the point that I'm getting at, really, when it comes yeah. to this stuff. Absolutely. So one thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, I've known you for a long time now, and you always have this friendly, good-natured attitude. You always seem really optimistic. Always got a smile on your face. Um, does that ever slip? 
Um, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course it slips. I mean, I don't think anybody's under any illusions that I, you know, I, I, even I, I, even I have a bad day or an off day, right? But, um, I think I'm. I, I always smile and I always try to be positive because, if I'm honest, I think the world is sad enough. Um, for everybody, I don't think it needs some another person being <laughs> depressed and uh, upset and annoyed at things. So, um, I try to internalize that. And I, to be honest, that's something I've always done. Uh, you know, since I was a kid, I, I tend to internalize a lot of stuff, a lot of feelings. So, um, and I've always I, I get told off by the doctor all the time. Not that I go to see them that often, but like when I have been to see them, um, they often say, "Why are you so hard on yourself?" This is the the question that comes up all the time. Why are you so hard on yourself? And if I'm honest, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know yeah. where it comes from, but I do internalize a lot. And that internalization that I do is the pressure that I put on myself. So all the pressure that's out there in the world. So, you know, if I look at emails in the morning when I come to the office, there might be a, a ton of stuff that needs to be done. I'll be stressed, but I won't necessarily let other people see that. Like no. it'll just be me trying to deal with it in whatever way I think it needs to be dealt with. But yeah, yeah, there'll still be a smile and there'll still be an email. If I respond to that email or a phone call that I do or whatever it is, um, it'll still be, hi, I saw your email, like really chatty and jovial positive. because yeah. positive. Yeah. Because they're, I, I think I realized that, do you know what? They're probably stressed. And the last thing they need me to do is come in and go rah and freak out. And, you know, so that's, I think that's what it is to be honest. I think I just don't want to give other people my worries or my concerns or whatever it is um, i think it's it's fantastic it is it's amazing and uh thanks for sharing that john that was kind um the last question i suppose is another one that i want to try and ask everybody what are your hopes for the future so when you think about whether it's in a technology sense society at large whether you think about the construction industry or even your own personal development you know what are your hopes for the future there's loads of things really that I would hope for the future. I mean, personally, I guess, um, I hope that all the stuff I set out to achieve five years ago when I joined Broadway Mine that I achieve, um, I know yeah. we've achieved, I've, I've achieved a lot, you know, if I, even just one example would be, you know, five years ago when I joined, there was, I think one studio in one, one team in one studio, I should say using Revit. Right. And now we've got it used everywhere. So, I mean, it's not perfect. We're not talking about a utopia here, but we, we've, you know, that's, that's an achievement that's been, that's been done. So when I joined that, one of the things that was set out was everybody should use Revit and, you know, we're, we're getting there. And there's lots of other things on that, that roadmap that have been achieved. And obviously there's a few things that are still outstanding. So, um, and I have to be honest, I set a five-year roadmap and we're almost at five years. So um, I think in our couple of years are probably required. Um, to achieve everything but if I can achieve that in the next say it was three years four years whatever it is I don't know um, then I'd be happy with that so from, from a personal point of view I think that's good um, and I think at the wider context of industry wise and, and world wise I think industry wise I think what would be great to see is just people uh, businesses and, and, and industry at large just kind of being a bit more um, a bit more collaborative I think um, mm. I don't know if that's the right word but like less siloed um, mm -hmm. and just breaking, and I, you know, it started to happen. We, we were seeing that. So it's not like, I don't think for any, there's nothing in me that goes, this is not going to happen. I just, I, we just don't know how long it's going to take. I, but I think even if it's another couple of years, another five years, another 10 years, I'm definitely looking forward to the point where we become like, we, we're not a silo anymore, right? We all kind of work together and we're, we're kind of all on the same page and we use the same technology and the same standards and the same, whatever it is. Um, and, um, yeah, we can kind of deliver buildings fairly quickly, uh, rather than being, you know, in, in our case, it probably reminds some of our projects last five years, 10 years, sometimes, um, not, not often, but you know, they, they do exist. Um, so yeah, getting that sort of down to maybe a one or two year cycle might, might be quite, quite interesting, but I think that can only really happen with proper, integration of the entire chain the design team chain um and then worldwise oh god i don't know we, we I, there's loads <laughs> of things i'd love to see but i think overall i think maybe just to be honest i think a little bit more uh everybody's taking a bit more responsibility for the planet they live on i think would be great um i know it's obviously something that everybody talks about at the moment it's kind of the hot topic of you know everybody wants to be environmentally friendly and stuff but i do think it's important because i would just like to see people be a bit more 
thoughtful, not of not just for themselves, but for other people, be more caring. I think we just need to think about our neighbours a little bit more and say, like, you know what, we've all got a right to be here. We've all got to kind of get on with each other and not overexert ourselves. That would be that would be fantastic. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks so much to John for a brilliant conversation about his work and the realities of digital practice. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the podcast on your chosen listening platform and press like or leave a review if you can, helping more people to discover these episodes. If you have any feedback or suggestions, or you think that you have a unique perspective on digital construction and that we could have an interesting conversation, please contact us at podcast at the mbs.com. Until our next episode, thanks and goodbye.